Beloved, please open the Bibles, if you haven't already, to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. We'll be starting in verse 10, working through verse 14 of chapter 7, and that's uh, page 556 in the Bible in front of you, in your pew. An American theologian by the name of Brian Brock, who serves as the chair of Christian ethics at the University of Aberdeen, said this in his recent book about Christianity. We need to be alienated from what we think we know in order to genuinely grow. Let me say that again. We need to be alienated from what we think we know in order to genuinely grow. The bottom line is, brothers and sisters, we think we have it all figured out. We think we know how we ought to think. We think we know how to live and we think in how we live, it's gonna control the outcomes of our life. But in order for us to understand the heavenly content of chapter six and chapter seven that we're gonna be looking at today, we really need for God to open up our minds and to teach us from his word, through his spirit, what he says about himself and what he says about our own limitations. Last week, if you remember, the preacher is giving us all sorts of warnings about running to money and the dangers of money because that's where we think wisdom is. That's where we think care for our own lives is found, is in, is in money. And he continues in that same train of thought today, and he goes a little bit further by teaching us about the sovereignty of God. And how we often think and the way we think is not the way that God thinks and we need desperately to understand the way that God thinks. This passage, just to be honest, is the most uncomfortable type of passage to preach. But it will teach us what the sovereignty of God means and how it's good for us to be ruled by one who is sovereign and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and righteousness. The main point for our passage today is simply this. We must accept our own limitations as man and trust God as we seek to walk by wisdom because God is sovereign and he knows what is better for man in every season. That's what I hope we walk away with today. Do we recognize, do we trust that God actually knows what is better for us than we do? Uh, that's boiled down in a nutshell. No matter what's going on in your life, all these faces that I'm looking at right now, there's probably a lot of things, heavy things, that we cannot control. I I hope today that you're encouraged by the word of God to to be reminded that there is a God that knows better for you than you do for yourself, even though that that is contrary to how we think naturally. Uh, So we're going to look kind of at three parts today. There's three pieces to uh, this sermon. Uh, We're going to look first at the indisputable truth uh, of God's sovereignty in the first few verses of uh, at the end of chapter six. And then we're going to look at what God says and how what he says is compared to what we think naturally, and it's going to be uh, sort of embarrassing for us. Uh, And and then we're going to kind of close it out at the end 
uh, by being reminded to trust in the work of God because he is over the day of joy and the day of adversity. Everything that we go through in this life, our God is over. So look with me at uh, verse 10 of chapter 6. This is where we get our first point today, which is this. We want to accept God's sovereignty. We want to accept God's sovereignty. Verse 10, whatever has come to be has already been named. That's where we're going to start today. Everything that has been or what is currently has already been named. That's what the preacher says. So to give something a name means to appoint character or identity or value to something. Uh, The one who appoints a name is the one who is sovereign over the one uh, he appoints the name to. He's the one who affirms the value. He's the one who is essentially ruler over the one he names. Now, we know this in small portion because some of us have had children or pets, and those aren't synonymous. But we name them, and we give uh, care to them, and we know who they are, and we make sure that they are provided for. So anytime a name is given, there is one who is sovereign over the one who has given the name. So who has named all that is, all that has ever been? It is God alone. Everything that has ever been, God has named. He has known it inside the sovereignty of his own foreknowledge. That means he knows everything presently going on in our lives. He knows everything that will come in our lives. Everything that we deem as good, uh, victorious, anything we deem as unjust or uh, suffering or whatever it is, he knows about it and has actually given name to it. He's over all of it. That's what he's saying right here. And we, and we know this, right? Uh, we know that God is sovereign categorically, but when we start pressing into the finer things of life, we, we need to rest in the fact that he is over every small little thing in our life. Uh, we know that um, Jesus named Peter to deny him three times. And that's exactly what Peter did. He came, he said, you're gonna deny me three times. And what Christ had named came about. So both whatever happened in the world and what has happened to man have settled character inside of God's authority. Look with me at the second part of verse 10. And it is known what man is and that he is not able to dispute with one who is stronger than he. God knows what man is and that man is unable to dispute with him because God made man and had actually made him limited. So it's good for man to recognize, it's good for us to recognize that we are limited. Let's just kind of accept that today before we move forward. Man is not able to dispute with sovereign God. He's not able to do it. Uh, Now we should lament and we, we should pray. We see this in the Psalms. We want to pour out our souls to God to comfort us or to help provide understanding or relief in the midst of suffering. But we are unable to dispute with God what he deems as named. Now, perhaps you remember in the book of Job, Job did dispute with God for a time until he realized that this was a fool's errand. Listen to what Job says in chapter 9. 
Truly I know that it is so, but how can a man be in the right before God? If one wished to contend with him, one could not answer him once in a thousand times. He is wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has hardened himself against him and succeeded. He who removes mountains and they know it not, when he overturns them in his anger, who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble, who commands the sun and it does not rise, who seals up the stars, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea, who made the bear and Orion and Pleiades and the chambers of the south, who does great things beyond searching out the marvelous things beyond number. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. Behold, he snatches away. Who can turn him back? And who will say to him, what are you doing? Man cannot wrap his mind around God. Isaiah says it this way in chapter 45, and Paul uses it in Romans 9. Who is the pot to question the potter? Who is, who is a particle of dust to question the one who holds Orion in his hand? What a picture for us to consider the majesty and the glory of our sovereign God. Jonathan Edwards said, when considering God, just the simple phrase that God is God is sufficient to still all objections against him. God is God and that is enough. Beloved, we spend a lot of time recognizing in our own minds what we think is best, but it's good for us to recognize who it is that holds it all together. And in fact, he gives us warning in verse 11, the more words, the more vanity what is the advantage of man? Man needs to say less, essentially. Man needs to dwell more on God. Now, depending on where you are in life or what you've gone through, some of us recognize the sovereignty of God perhaps a little bit differently. Have you ever been rocked by news that has completely upended your world and it came out of nowhere? You are not expecting it you realize at that point that you really don't control things like you think you do. I'll never forget the day we're sitting in the doctor's office and one doctor after one sonogram told us that your baby has a half heart and the whole world just exploded. I mean, it was like being in the fog of war with my wife and I. I just could not imagine that scenario. And I remember thinking in that moment, oh my goodness, I have no control over a single thing in this life, even the well-being of my own daughter. Life events happen, uh, and, and, they're, and they're good for us to teach us how to interpret the scriptures, how to, how to help, inter help us to interpret the sovereignty of God, because as James 4.14 says, we really don't know what tomorrow brings. The only thing we actually really do know is that we're going to die. That's the only thing that we actually can say with certainty tomorrow, maybe even today, that we are going to die. Now, Kolahet, the preacher, gives us two rhetorical questions in verse 12 when describing how man lives under the sun. He says, For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? And then the second question, For who can tell man what will be after him? under the sun. 
Now, the obvious answer to both of these questions is God, of course. God is the answer to both of these questions. But beloved, we honestly do think we know what is best for us. We, we often think we know how the world works or what we think we are owed. And he's pressing in here to get us to that place where we have to be completely honest before God to say, only God knows those things. Only God has, has, has those things figured out. Our limitations are exposed at the answer to these questions. So we need to take note in this. I'll, I'll give you an example. Have you, have you ever thought about this question? Would you choose the suffering that you have gone through in your own life? Would you choose it? I, I would never have chosen the suffering that I've gone through in this life. I, I would always opt for the non-suffering option, right? Be like, um, I'll take the number one, right? Every single time. But, but we also recognize that God uses suffering in us to, to show us more of who he is. And, and to, to show us more of how badly and how desperately we need him. Uh, how often we've made bad choices, but God has used those choices to teach us things and to reveal things within us that need to be revealed. This is how God works. He uses our circumstances in our lives to shape us into the image of his son. This is what God does, and we'd never choose it. But in his kindness, he is working in this way, as Romans 8.28 says. Now, just participate. You don't have to do it here, but you do it with your spouse or a friend this week. Look back on your life and think about what you've learned through the situations in life that you've walked through. Hard things, difficult things, because this whole passage is really about adversity. We're gonna talk about funerals here. We're gonna talk about temptations here. We're gonna talk about um, just struggles and the day of adversity. And verse All of this is to show us how limited we are and how powerful he is. Because what happens is when we walk through these things, he opens up our heart and he begins to show things that we did not know were there. Perhaps sin that is there, a lack of trust that we have in God that we did not know was there. Uh, perhaps he shows us his grace and his forbearance, his mercy and his love. God walks us through these things in his sovereignty because he's good. He prunes us with scissors. This is John 15, right? He trims us and he prunes us and it's for our good. He tests our faith, 1 Peter 1, the tested genuineness of our faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. That, way may, that we may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Man just doesn't think this way, but God does. And he knows that this is best for us. This is our sovereign God. Now, verses one through 12 in chapter seven kind of help us see how we think compared to God. And, and, and we kind of bring up that first rhetorical question, which is kind of driving those first 12 verses in chapter seven. For who knows what is good for man? 
This is what God thinks is better. This is how God thinks, and it shows the discrepancy of how we think in all these examples in verses 1 through 12. So the preacher kind of lays out wisdom, and he lays out folly, and wisdom is the way that God thinks, and folly is the way that all of us think. And he says, the difference between the thinking shows the difference between us and him. So let's look at verses 1 through 12. The first six verses kind of uh, describe a funeral or the day of death, if you will. Uh, Verse 7, a good name is better than precious ointment. And then the day of death, than the day of birth. Uh, Simply put, a good name first is more value or has more value than ointment, monetary things. What he's saying is man thinks monetary things are more important than a good name. Uh, we see this in uh, Matthew chapter 26. You remember uh, when that woman breaks that uh, expensive jar of ointment and the disciples are like, what are you doing? That's really expensive. That's good stuff. There's hope in that. And Jesus is simply like, she's pouring it on my head because she's preparing me for burial so that my name would move forward because my name is greater than this ointment. Uh, oftentimes we think the things we have are more valuable than the people that we are. But a good name is what we strive for our whole life or it's what we ought to because we belong to him. His name is on us. You can trade ointment all day long, but you cannot trade your name. You cannot trade your name. And then he says the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now how unreasonable to us does that sound, right? You've been in a hospital when someone is born, it is pure and utter excitement. And then you've been at a funeral and it is pure grief and sorrow. And yet he's saying here that the day of death is better than the day of birth. It doesn't really make make sense. I I remember the days that Abel and Titus and Abby Ruth were born. It's It's the most glorious thing to see their faces for the very first time. I remember when loved ones were taken from me. What does he mean? Does he saying that birth is non-joyous occasion and that funerals are a party? No, he's not saying that. He's simply telling us this, that death naturally makes us think differently about life and makes us think better about life. It sobers us. It's like a smelling salt to the heart. Uh, and you remember, he put eternity in our heart back in chapter three. Remember, he describes that. And death is kind of that smelling salt. It helps us to, uh, to, to process. It forces us to process really hard questions. And it makes us to work to reconcile things that don't make sense under the sun. Death does this. And he says, this is what I think is better, even though you think the day of birth is better. David Gibson in his book about Ecclesiastes says, death is a great teacher. I love that phrase. He essentially says that the coffin is a greater teacher than the baby bed, in a sense. The wise person sits in the funeral home and stares at the coffin and realizes that one day it will be his turn. The wise person asks himself, when is it my turn? What will my life have been worth? What will they be saying about me? This is what the preacher thinks is God's wisdom displayed. 
Have you thought about these questions from Gibson? If you want to be wise in this life, consider your death. We've talked about this a few times, right? This isn't the first time we've talked about death. He's clearly hitting, he's driving it home. Irenaeus said, the business of the Christian is nothing else but to ever be preparing for death. John Owen said, we cannot enjoy the peace in this world unless we are ready to yield to the will of God in respect of death. Our times are in his hand at his sovereign disposal and we must accept what is best. Beloved, if I could talk to you very candidly for a minute, our church has gone through a season of death. We have lost seven or eight brothers and sisters since Christmas. I I, I pray that the spirit of God would teach us to number our days, to be faithful and considerate of the things of God as he gives us breath in our lungs to live. He continues in verses two and four. He explains kind of man's natural motive when death occurs. And look what he says. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart. Verse four, the heart of the wise in the house is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. He compares the house of mourning to the house of feasting and mirth, at the house of jokes, the house of laughter, the house of celebration. But he's saying that the living, the people of God, will take to heart the house of mourning. This is what faithful people do. They don't avoid death. They don't walk away from it. They deal with it. The house of feasting and mirth can be an escapism that people would rather run to it than to run to the house of mourning because that's where they're confronted with the reality of life apart from God. This late last fall, I lost my uncle out of nowhere and he was a hero to me. And it was really the first time, I've lost loved ones before, but it was the first time that the Lord actually allowed me to sit in front of a casket to really consider my life. He was a really faithful husband and a faithful father. He's the best uncle. And just to consider, how, how am I doing as a father? What kind of life am I, am I demonstrating before my children? Or what kind of man am I laying down my life for my wife? Death has this bearing effect on us. It does teach us to number our days. And the warning that he gives us here is that we do think it's best to run away from it and go have a good time because we're living in this world. And he's really, he's warning us. Anyone who is actually dealing with life's tragedies is not running to alcohol, is not running to entertainment or any sort of fix. They run to the Lord because he provides ever-present help in times of trouble. This is what the godly do. This is how godly people think. So drink in the reality of death. When you go to a funeral, stare at the coffin, celebrate the life, praise God for the life, stare at the coffin and consider your own life. And don't be distracted, but let it hit you. The preacher said it's better that you be confronted then find aid somewhere else. That's what he's saying. So don't miss death's lessons. Now, 
are we supposed to not celebrate? Are we, are we only supposed to mourn? Of course not. Jesus taught us how to celebrate, right? John 2, the wedding of Cana. Jesus knows what it is to enjoy life and to celebrate. He also taught us what it is to weep at the tomb of Lazarus and to, to mourn with those who are with him in John chapter 11. Jesus teaches us the balance of both of these things. What the preacher is saying here is, don't run to the party and skip the funeral. Let the funeral do its work on you so that you would be found faithful. Quickly in verse three, he continues, sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. So what is not true is that it's better to be sad than happy. That's not what the preacher is saying. The preacher is teaching us that to gain wisdom or heavenly thinking, to gain the type of thinking that, that God finds best is to let sorrow teach us these lessons. And remember, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. Death cannot touch you. It cannot touch you. So let's let it teach us. That's, that's kind of the, the idea driven in this passages. Now he continues about death and wraps up in verses five and six. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This is also vanity. So in verse five, he advocates for the value of a rebuke from the wise. The wise person says, consider death over the festival. Listen to this, because it can point us in the right direction towards faithfulness. Proverbs 12.1 says, whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates reproof is stupid. Now, that's the ESV. I didn't just say the word stupid. That's what God's word says. We want to love reproof and correction. So let's listen to the wise man from the preacher who's through the word of God, what it looks like to be wise and how God thinks and how it's better than the way that we think. In verse six, he provides imagery for this. He, he says, crackling thorns in a fire. And what he's saying is how quickly thorns burn up in the fire, how quickly they go away. That's, he's equating that imagery to laughter. So laughter can't suffice in the morning. Right? You've ever started a fire and it's raging and you're like, I've got it. And then 17 seconds later, you're, there's like only a few fighting embers. You're like, where did the fire go? That's what laughter, that's what laughter does. So we want to be wise. We want to think well about death in this world, as the preacher is teaching us. We also want to think well about temptation because we're naturally prone not to think well about temptation. Look with me in verses seven through 10 to see kind of man's natural response to temptation. The first one is money or bribery. There's four of them that we're gonna look at very quickly. Verse seven, surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. He's simply saying this, be wise in dealings with money. Uh, even with wisdom, you can still be tempted to take a bribe, a, a wise person can hate oppression, but then when a bribe comes, they take it. And he's saying, this is how man thinks. And this is not the way that God thinks. There is a warning here for men to be very careful, not to bend the convictions that we have for the sake of a bribe. 
because temptation can flourish around us. And if temptation is flourishing, our sin can latch on to it. The second he talks about is impatience. Look at with me in verse eight. This is how man naturally thinks. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So, so what is better is for man to be patient than impatient because man is naturally impatient. You're all sitting there in the sermon and you're like, okay, 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 right? Man's naturally, naturally impatient. It's just the way that, that we are. But better is the end of a thing than its beginning. This is why we celebrate college graduation and not every day that you're in college, right? It's better to be tested, to be found proven, to go through the entire course of action than it is to just celebrate along the way and ultimately abandon the work. What then are we celebrating? So he's telling us to be aware of this because man quickly moves on to the next topic if things aren't happening as fast as we want them to. And so what we do is say, well, that was a fine work, but I think the best work is to now move on to this. And there's a warning for us here of impatience. And the character of our God is patience. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. He who begins a good work in us, Philippians 1 says, he's faithful, patient, loving, steadfast to complete that work. This is how God thinks. He didn't just create Genesis 1.1 and then the next day he had everything he wanted to in his creation. Look at the process that he has taken all of creation throughout the cosmos to show his glory. Our God knows all about patience and we know nothing about it. Uh, the third is anger. Look with me in verse nine. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry for anger lodges in the heart of fools. The Bible says right here that if you lose your temper easily and often, you're a fool. It, it reveals your deep-seated control and pride issues. It reveals our, our, our folly, uh, arrogance, and our denial of the sovereignty of God. We don't trust God. And things aren't going the way that we want them to go, and we're not happy about it. It's what anger, it's what anger is provoking within us and it's like what Paul said. Remember when we were in Colossians chapter three, verse eight. He's like, anger is one of those things that we're supposed to put away. And we can only do this through the work of the Holy Spirit of God. The, for, the fourth thing is this, sentimentality. And you might be like, why is that there with money and patience and greed? Why is it all? Well, look what he says, verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Beloved, everybody in this room has a temptation to think that the days behind us are better days. We all have that temptation. This is easily provoked when we suffer, we don't get our way, something is taken from us that we really love, and it's a struggle. We wanna go back to the way things were. And often we try to escape to the past because we think somewhere that back there, there's gonna be rest for our souls. But what happens is we don't trust Christ today and the work that he's doing today. 
the fresh and new work that he's doing. I love driving down 18708 Amador in far north Dallas between Preston and Hillcrest. It's the last street in Dallas. That's where I grew up. I love it. And I drive down there and a flood of memories, sorry about the pop, a flood of memories come back to me. And if I'm not careful, I can start thinking about the simplicity of life or, or, or just major regrets or, or uh, wishing that things were as simple as that and missing out on the daily bread that God gives me today. David, uh, David Gibson, again, going back to him, he, he kind of categorizes these four things and each attaches escapism to them. So a bribe is an escape from your responsibility Impatience is an escape from your reality. Anger is an escape from your ability to handle anything. And sentimentalism is an escape from today. Being able to deal with today and all that Christ is gonna do tomorrow. And we need to recognize that we need to think well in these, in these topics, in these categories. Let's, let's recognize this is the way that God thinks. In contrast, the way that we think and God's wisdom is good for us. It's so good for, he's such a good God to provide his wisdom through his word. In fact, he summarized it in verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Wisdom or, or, or thinking these ways has benefits to it. And here he, he kind of attaches the example of money. Since man thinks he finds hope and stability in money, he's saying wisdom is like money, except look, at, look in verse uh, tw uh, excuse me, 12. He says, but wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. God, make us wise. Help us to think in the heavenly realm. Help us, help us to be faithful, to trust that you are good and you know things for us that are better for us than we can possibly imagine. God, help us in these things. Money isn't the answer. Money can provide security, no doubt, but if it's just money, I think Ecclesiastes has just blown the argument away that nothing, nothing worth living for is found in what money gets you. But wisdom has benefit to it. Wisdom has benefit to it. Now, where is wisdom found? Well, we see in the book of Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, it's found in the fear of God. Wisdom is found in the fear of God, which is exactly where the preacher takes us in our final point today. Look with me in verses 13 and 14. Trusting in God's work. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Uh, this little section kind of brings back the second rhetorical question. Remember, who can tell man what will be after him? Well, he brings it back in 14. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This trusting in God's work, this third point is just driving home the idea of God's sovereignty yet again. We're confronted with, re with the reality to consider God's work and that we cannot change a single thing. We can be faithful, but he is sovereign over all of it. 
What God sends, he sends, and it clips our wings of self-sufficiency. That's what Derek Kidner said. Truly, only, only God knows what comes after man. And there's days of prosperity, and we've seen those days, have we not? You have a new job, you have a new house, you have children, perhaps you have an inheritance. You know the day of prosperity, and you also know the day of adversity. You've suffered Uh, You've had loved ones who have died. There's been affliction. Perhaps there's even been persecution. And it says in this passage that God has made both of those. God has made both of those days. And so we we were just confronted with the the ways of our heart. Remember what we just read, verses 1 through 12? Uh, Greed, impatience, anger, sentimentalism, uh, wanting to avoid the house of mourning. But we must remember that all of these areas of crookedness, all of these areas of affliction are still under the reign of our sovereign God. Every single bit of it. Look with me in verse 13. Who can make straight what he, referring to God, has made crooked? Well, first off, we cannot change what already is. And we cannot work out our own crookedness. We cannot make ourselves uncrooked at all. And secondly, what has God made crooked? What, is, what does that mean? It's a, it's a question that's prompted from the text. Well, most importantly, this is what it doesn't mean. It does not mean that God made sin. God did not make crooked things, okay? Or that God causes sin. Uh, James 1.13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. 1 John 1.5, in him there is no darkness at all. So when we read that he made it crooked, we have to recognize that God did not make sin But what is included in God's provision over man is his control over human sin. We have to recognize this. Romans 11.32 says that God has co-signed. Please listen to this. God has co-signed all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Co-sign means to imprison together or to transfer into custody. This is is what this means. It was the will of God to have man in a state of sin, to be crooked. The will of God. He didn't stop it, and he could have, but this is his will. Now, our natural question is, well, did God cause crookedness? Did he cause the fall? That's what we naturally think. Next week, verse 29, will help us see that, no, God created man upright, And that is what man, uh, it was man who sought out many schemes. So this is supremely important for our theology to recognize that in God there is no sin and yet he is sovereign over all of our crookedness, all all of our brokenness. Stephen Sharnick, one of the Puritan divines, little d, says this, though God created man changeable, Yet he was not the cause of change by his fall. Man was not determined by God influencing his will by any positive act to that change. God did not incline him to do evil. 
God does not create sin and he doesn't make man sin. We see throughout Genesis 1 and 2, God speaking everywhere, speaking things into existence. He's creating and then he's saying that it's good. Uh, What we see though in Genesis 3, 1 through 7 is an interaction between Satan and Adam and Eve and God is not present. He spoke no sin into existence. Satan is the agent God used to cultivate the schemes of man's heart. God did not do this, but he didn't prevent it either. He didn't prevent it either. So how could this happen or why would this happen? So that he could be merciful. So guys, what what we're getting at here is he is sovereign over all of it. All your hurt, all your brokenness, everything, God is over it and man cannot make it uncrooked. He cannot fix it. He of course knew man would sin, but before time he also knew that he would provide a lamb. This is the will of God. God has made the day of adversity and the day of joy. And he can't and we cannot make what he has made crooked. But he works out everything in conformity to the purpose of his will, as it says in Ephesians 1. Now, I know this is really dense. I know that. But it's also what God's word says. And if we want to know God, we have to sit in it. We have to think through. We got to chew on it and go, okay, he's over it. Everything that happens in our life, he's over it. So there's, there's, there's hope. There's rest in that. God overrules our actions to bring the counsel of his will to pass. And guys, we see this with Joseph, right? His brothers sin against him. And and we see in Genesis 50, sell him into slavery, goes really bad for Joseph for a while, but what evil intended for evil, God intended for good. He's he's sovereign over that. Uh, We see in John chapter six that he knew that Judas was going to betray him. And he didn't stop Judas. He never stopped. Now, Judas died his own death for the penalty of his own sin. He took his life. But that's on Judas. Yet Christ was sovereign over it. He's sovereign over all of it. Even when his children are being persecuted, like described in Hebrews 12, or under the fiery trials of this world, he is sovereign over it because he's working through his loving hand of discipline to move his people towards Christ-likeness. He's he's allowing them to participate in the sufferings of Christ for their future glory. He's even sovereign over that, which means everything that happens in this life, beloved, we can trust the Lord that he knows what he's doing and he's bringing it about to completion. So God is sovereign over your diagnosis in this room your financial troubles, your marriage conflicts. If you've had children that have ran from the faith, he's sovereign over it. If anybody's been left by their family because you've turned to Christ, he's sovereign over it. He's working all things together for good. You can trust him. You can be obedient to his perfect will. He knows what he's doing. Uh, Does this mean he doesn't care for you in the midst of your suffering? Of course not. 
Blessed are those who mourn, as it says in Matthew 5, for they will be comforted. This is the character of our God. In fact, your brokenness and your situation are so grievous to God that he gave up his only begotten son and he was pleased to crush him, as it says in Isaiah 53. Uh, does this mean that we should, shouldn't go about relieving adversity or, or helping the oppressed or, 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 or not praying or praising him? Of course not. Scripture is littered with godly actions that we have responsibility for, to care for the sick and to help the marginalized and the dying. This is what it simply means to trust that he is sovereign and that he knows what he's doing and that he is always doing good even when you cannot see it. This is our God. He's working with his hands in your life to bring about his glory and your good, no matter what. So God is sovereign. And the, at the extent that he made crooked what man cannot make straight, but in closing, but he also makes crooked, what, excuse me, but he also makes what is crooked straight. And this is what God does prophesied in Isaiah 45 that there one would come and he would make all things straight is what he says. So Jesus arrives in Luke chapter four and we read and he reads Isaiah 61. You remember that beautiful scene? Jesus is introducing himself, a public ministry. The spirit of the Lord is on me, he says from Isaiah 61, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. We know the one who is gonna make all things straight. We know the one who is gonna make all things straight. I love this little picture of it in Luke 13. It's just three verses. Now he was teaching in the synagogue on the Sabbath and behold, there was a woman who had been disabled by a spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not straighten herself. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her. And immediately, the scripture says, she was made straight and she glorified God. She was bent over and not straight of all. Brothers and sisters, that's our spiritual condition that's just been described in this passage today. We don't know how to think. We think it's better to, to live this way and God's like, actually, it's this. We're bent over just as this woman. But guess what, guys? Listen to the Messiah. He saw her and he invited her over to him. And he applies his hands to her and he heals her. This is our Jesus. And Jesus is still doing this very same thing for us today. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He invites us to come to him. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. Is that you today? You've been thinking like a man far too long. He invites you today to come and to be made straight, not by your works, but by his. And Jesus also teaches us how to live in this life when things aren't going the way that we want them, right? For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. 
Jesus in Luke 9, 51, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. For six months, he's walking towards the cross, knowing that he's going to, to suffer. Tr praying, and great drops of blood are pouring out from his forehead. And he's continuing to trust the goodness of God to complete the plan. This is God. This is a perfect example how to trust the Father's care in the midst of a difficult situation. Like all of us find ourselves in today. Aren't you glad that God came up with the plan for Christ to die. None of us would have come up with that plan. That's man's wisdom. None of us would have come up with that plan. But this is God revealing his divine love and wisdom through it. I'm so glad he doesn't take my counsel. I'm so glad. God alone is the one who raises life out of the ashes. And that's what he does two very quick responses today before we take the table. First and foremost, beloved, delight in the sovereignty of God. Delight in it. Let it be your joy. Let it be the balm to your soul. Let it be the healing hand of the Lord upon you that he is over all things and that he is working all things together for your good. Let this not be uh, uh, him stepping across the line into your personal territory, but let it be your delight. Jonathan Edwards says this, it has been wonderful alteration of mind in respect to the doctrine of God's sovereignty. The absolute sovereignty of God helped Edwards to learn how to rest. So delight in the sovereignty of God. The second point is this, rest in the sovereignty of God. Rest. In order to rest, we have to know our limitations. We have to accept your limitations today. You don't know what tomorrow brings. Accept it. But God does. He holds all things together. Does this mean in our resting that we shouldn't pray? Sometimes when we think about the sovereignty of God, we're like, if God's sovereign over all things, why should we pray? Pray. He, he wants us to Pray and to depend upon him, and to know him, to rest in him, and to be faithful and obedient. He teaches us how to pray. Should we repent? Yes, repent. Be active in our repenting. This is how we rest in the sovereignty of God, knowing that Christ took our punishment for us. Should we share Christ with the nations? Absolutely, let's be faithful and obedient to take the great commission out to the nations. We get to rest in the sovereignty of God. We get to trust him. Because he's proven, he's good. And sometimes we don't believe he's good, but he's good. And he's finished the work at Christ, but he's not finished the work in us. So often we think, well, life isn't fair right now in this season. Beloved, he's not done with you. He's still working and growing you into the image of Christ. It doesn't matter if you're 95 years old or if you're eight. It doesn't matter, he's working right now for those who are in Christ Jesus, for his glory and for your good. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to come to the table today with a humble posture, recognizing, Father, that you are good and that your son has borne our grief for us. We love you. In Christ we pray, amen.